Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Are you ready for some insightful commentary on everything delicious? Well, I hope so. On this show... I have everything for food lovers, from recipes to menu planning, and I cover food news and restaurants, wine and travel, health, tech, trends, mixology, and more, which is why I will hope that you make me your radio destination for delicious conversation every weekend. This is a place for people who love to cook and who love to eat. And it's my goal to feed your soul. So set your culinary sights higher because I'm sharing inspired ideas and bringing you an arsenal of sweet and savory dishes, plus a whole lot more. You can always find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. And on social, you'll find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So let's dig in. As a little girl, my mom would take from the oven a heavy cast iron skillet with this glorious spectacle within, and I would ooh and ah in excitement. It looked like a puffy crater with a sweet aroma. It's called a Dutch baby, and it demands immediate before it deflates eating, and you top it with caramelized apples or sliced strawberries or a spoonful of blueberry jam or a shower of confectioner sugar at least, and it holds a very dear place in my heart. And so, as I like to kick off this show every week with um, a method, a tutorial, an instruction manual to a new dish, the goal to make you a better cook in your own kitchen, let's dish about Dutch babies. And by the end of this tutorial, you will hopefully be running to the kitchen, pulling out the eggs and planning breakfast for breakfast or breakfast for lunch or maybe even breakfast for dinner. Even though it's called a pancake, this German version bears little resemblance to the fluffy flapjacks that we're used to on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, German pancakes or Dutch babies, are made of a non-leavened crepe-like batter. And there's usually some sort of fruit. I mentioned apples, but any fruit will work. And often the fruit is cooked in the skillet first and then covered with a pour of batter. That, by the way, in the sweet fashion uh, from the French, and we thank them, is called a clifudi. But the way that it was served to me is more of a plain pancake that's then garnished or finished. And it's, by the way, baked at very high heat. And what you end up with is a clafouti-like pancake um, that's custardy on the center, but puffy and light and airy on the exterior. And it's very awe-inspiring in and of itself. A German pancake is really hard to beat. It makes a beautiful breakfast. I happen to love, it's my favorite, to serve it at brunch. It makes an a la minute dessert. Um, or you can take it to the savory side, so stay tuned. Now, to make the ultimate Dutch baby, most batters use all milk. Sometimes I incorporate a little bit of Greek yogurt or sour cream for a bit of a richer flavor. But what sets mine apart and what will make your Dutch baby even more brilliant is that the batter comes together 
in a blender. And you pour this smooth batter into what is a preheated pan, a hot, hot, hot buttered pan. And it shimmers and it bubbles in the oven until the moment of liftoff. And then what happens is it starts to crawl up the sides of the cast iron skillet and it curls at the ends and it rises above the rim. And I remember sitting on the floor in the kitchen watching, staring into the oven. And then sometimes you get an occasional mogul here or there, uh, but it's just absolutely beautiful to look at. Now, it's an old recipe, um, and its history skews sweet, you should know. The origin of the, uh, the Dutch baby could be Deutsche, and the dish's popularity in America is due in part to Sunset Magazine articles that date back more than 50 years, but it's hundreds of years uh, back uh, that supposedly the Dutch baby um, has been mastered, and It's really versatile enough to be both sweet and savory. So in other words, you can have your way with it. You see, you can spice up the batter. Um, You could use it as a vessel. If you made it savory for vegetables or greens, you could melt cheese on it and cut it into wedges and snack on it. Uh, There are a few rules, though, to keep in mind, whether savory or sweet. The batter should be very well blended. So you don't want to add anything into the batter that has weight because it will impede the rise. And the pan and the fat in the pan must be hot, H-O-T, hot. Now, a Dutch baby is easy, just so you know, but it's spectacular. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that it's magic. So maybe it's time you rediscovered the magic or you give the magic a go. Here are my best tips. You can use an oven proof skillet. Even a pie plate will work, but a cast iron skillet is best because it gets so hot and it retains its heat. And you'll see from my recipe and most recipes for a Dutch baby that you preheat the pan in the oven, then you add the fat and then you put it back in the oven so that it's melted and hot throughout without having cooled down the pan. Then you pour in the batter. Now, the true secret to the ultimate Dutch baby is that the eggs need to be close to room temperature in order to maximize their rise in the oven. So my best quick technique to master this German pancake is that if you didn't think about it long enough in advance and pull the eggs out to come to room temperature. You place the eggs in a bowl of warm tap water for five minutes or until they're close to room temperature, and then you make your batter. And you should know when you deliver a Dutch baby to the table, you are going to be a culinary hero. Okay, it's time for food news this week because food lovers should be in the know and because this stuff makes really great dinner party conversation. So, did you read this yet? There is a new trick to keeping your trash can from reeking. Yes, a big, wonderful Ivy League college has tested it and the study has been proven. It's one of the easiest and cheapest methods I've seen to keeping the trash can smelling fresh as flowers. All you need to do is soak a cotton ball with a scent that you like, an essential oil, essentially, uh, well, pun intended, orange oil or lemon oil. Today you can buy lemongrass oil. Um, Anything that permeates a, a really pungent, beautiful, 
preferably citrusy smell in my opinion. And you take that soaked cotton ball of essential oil and you drop it in the bottom of the trash can before you put a new trash bag in. And if you go through several bags a week of trash, like I do, I don't know where the trash comes from, but I'm telling you, I make so much of it. You can keep the cotton ball down there for a few uses. And of those few drops of oil, they mask the smell in and around the trash can. And it's really quite brilliant. I tested it this past week and it works wonders. And by the way, if you use white tea tree oil or clove oil, not only do you get a beautiful aromatic scent, but it helps kill bacteria. I happen to love that this is a totally eco-friendly way and a clean baby family kid friendly way to keep that trash uh, smelling clean, right? So do try it and let me know how it turns out for you in your kitchen. Um, I do have some other news you should know. This spring, which we're, we're coming to soon, Dunkin' Donuts and the Girl Scouts are making sugary dreams come true. Not only can you buy Girl Scout cookies at Dunkin' this month across the country, but the coffee shop that's known for shaking up its menu very much surprised all of us when they dropped three new drink flavors inspired by the famous cookies onto their menu just a few days ago. So you can, at Dunkin' Donuts, drink a thin mint, which mixes cool mint and chocolate, a coconut caramel coffee-based drink based on the beloved Samoas, and peanut butter cookie coffee is now available at Dunkin' Stores. You can find participating locations of Dunkin' that are supporting our girls on the official Girl Scout website. That's just fun. And then, of course, don't touch your dial because we have so much more delicious conversation coming up. I am very excited that Gabrielle Corcos is stopping by. Yes, he and his wife, Debbie Mazar, whom you love from the Cooking Channel, have a new book out, and it is all about the beautiful, bountiful food of Tuscany. And before the end of the hour, vegan chef Janae Claiborne will be here. She's got some great tips and tricks to using the beloved sweet potato. So we'll dish. Stay right where you are. Keep your radio tuned. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, and there's more fabulous food right after this break. Bringing you the best of culinary entertainment in your radio, Chef Jamie Gwen here. Gabrielle Corcos was raised in a Tuscan olive orchard in the hills above Florence. He started cooking at the age of six, and he has not stopped since. Debbie Mazar, a native New Yorker, made her film debut in Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas and has appeared in more than 70 feature films since. And the two of them together we know and love. The lively, lovely pair 
on their cooking channel show, Extra Virgin, that share the warmth of an Italian-American home like no one else can. Debbie and Gabrielle are inviting you into their kitchen once again. The new cookbook, which is so beautiful and so full of love, shares their family recipes from Gabrielle's potato gnocchi with a buttery red sauce that I can't wait to make, to his grandmother's twist, I suppose, his Tuscan fried chicken with the classic Italian flavors that puts a whole new spin on the traditional. Super Tuscan, as it's called, the cookbook showcases the best of two cultures. And Gabrielle is here to dish. He is the James Beard award-winning talent. And of course, the chef side of the Gabrielle Corcos and Debbie Mazar duo, and I am so happy to have you here. Ciao, Gabrielle. Jamie, hi. How are <laughs> hi. you? Hi, everybody. It's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, congratulations on the book. It's my pleasure, you know. The book is so full of warmth. Like, I, it screams you and Debbie, and I love that because it comes through. It's about, I think, what you celebrate in every day your daily life oh trust me like imagine that a regular pregnancy is nine months and running a cookbook is a uh, two years so <laughs> once the book finally comes out it's a uh, it's uh, a real uh, tornado of you know relief excitement yes. uh I, we are obviously extremely extremely proud and you know because i i keep on professing myself as not as a professional chef but more as an entrepreneur who happens to be a decent cook I am really, really happy that the message comes through in the book. The, uh, the joy of cooking, the joy of learning new recipes and, and bringing people around the table, that is really what, what sparks uh, in me. That's what excites me about uh, food. It's not necessarily the turning tables. And this book is really such a testament to that because even if there is a culinary evolution in it, uh, you know, I'm discovering also myself and cooking a few different things from you know, the, the, the core of work that I've been doing in the past. The recipes are fairly easy. They, they speak to uh, hungry, simple people, simple people in, in the good sense, you know, people that are working, people that have kids, people that are sometimes on a budget or don't have much time. Obviously, there are some holiday recipes, but for the most part, this is the way that we open it in our house. This is really like a, a, an open window into our life. Yes, and, and that's how it feels. No, it feels like real food. Like if I were to come to your home, but I, I will also say that it has all of the influences of your Tuscan upbringing. It represents your daily cooking today. Yes, it does. And, and my cooking, I have to say, it has uh, improved dramatically, hmm. but it also has changed. You know, when, when, when I wrote the first book, which is actually, you know, in the very, very beginning, I wrote recipes hoping to get a book deal while my wife was uh, an actress and nobody wanted it. So that's why we started using those recipes to post on YouTube, but then eventually became a TV show, and then eventually, finally, we put out the book. That book really represented the core of who I was and what I was cooking. Now, it has been 16 years in the mm. U.S. Uh, I have been exposed to many of the staple recipes around the country. I got to travel the country for work, for pleasure, uh, to see friends or to film my shows. But I have fallen in love with certain things, and uh, as I discover myself as, as somebody that is Italian, but ultimately I consider myself also American because I do live here and I, I am a citizen. Certain things are now part of, of my culture as well. Uh, the, the only difference is that instead of uh, learning necessarily recipes out of books or other chefs, uh, I just 
look at something and I decide to give it my twist. So, you know, now we should come for Super Bowl at my house. I'd love to come for Super Bowl, Gabriel. Thank you. But now I do have a recipe <laughs> for chicken wings. Like in Italy, you know, I'm from a team. Chicken yes. wings go cats. I noticed that. Cat, cat I know. <laughs> so, but I have to say, uh, they are delicious. Uh, chowder. Chowder is something that in Italy is very... You don't find it because the, 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 the touch of rouge and flour to the soup is something that comes from the north where they don't have much fish. The, the soup fishes that come mainly from the south and the center of Italy tend to be more on the brothy side. But mm-hmm. here, here you have New England and the Upper East Coast and places where that are by the ocean where, in fact, in winter it gets really, really cold. So I do appreciate that kind of like more homey texture that you have, uh, you know, in good, good chowder. At the same time, instead of using bacon, I am using guanciale or pancetta or, you know, more right. refined Italian cured meats. I, I offer the ingredient. I like uh, mussels a lot. So my chowder is actually pancetta and mussels oh. instead of clams. It looks so, so good. But to you, that's Italian peasant food in American style, right? The bread it is soups. The same approach. Yes. It is absolutely 100% the same approach. You know, when you go through the ingredient list, you will never find. Here or there, you can find something that you might have to source, maybe online or maybe in a specialty store. But this book is actually easier than the first one in terms of sourcing the ingredients. And that's why the Super Toscan, you know, Super Toscan in, uh, in Italy, in Toscany, are those wines that are considered kind of like a little black sheep, the little, you know, runs, just because they are produced out of the rules that the county consortium has established uh, in order to get the county label. And a lot of uh, winemakers said, well, look, you know, we're from same areas, but we want to do something different. We're going to start mixing these blends and do something different. And the county consortium said, yeah, do whatever you want. You just cannot call it Chianti. And they were like, we'll call it Super Tosca. That's fine. We'll call it something else, right? And that really, really, really speaks uh, uh, loudly about my yes, approach. Yes, it does. I, I, I am Toscan. I am a, a real tourist when it, when it comes to ingredients and the way that I mm-hmm. work. But at the same time, if something is good, why do you want to renounce it? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, so good. I agree with you. But I think, I think that term Super Tuscan really does define you because you you cherish and relish your Tuscan roots. That's come through since we met you, whether it be on television and with Debbie and through the cookbooks and otherwise, but you like to think outside the box and it's what makes your cooking unique. I wonder, you have a favorite all-time dish, I imagine, that conjures up memories from your childhood and you've made it your own here. What is that one dish that represents you? Oh my God. Uh, that's Jamie. That's I know. I did, it's like asking your favorite child. Which one do you? I know. I don't think it's the ingredient per se, but what the group of foods uh, carry with yes. them, and and, and the, the kind of sentiment that I brought from Italy. So to me, mm. I would say that pastas are what allows me to make love to you in twenty minutes. The book made me want to run to the kitchen and cook. Thank you. And that's the best compliment. I, I was going to say, and I don't know a better compliment than that. So congratulations to you and Debbie. Once again, we will continue to follow all of your successes. At, and to you, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you. At the thetuscangun.com. Gabrielle Corcos and Debbie Mazar are sharing once again, the warmth, the love, and the truly delectable dishes that come from their family, from their home, from their kitchen. The book has just released. It's called Super Tuscan, Heritage Recipes and Simple Pleasures from Our Kitchen to Your Table. And you definitely 
want to add the book to your collection. Gabrielle, grazie, grazie, and ciao. And oh, hi to, to, Deb, to Debbie. Come back again soon, please. I will, absolutely. All the best. Have a good evening, everybody. As the delicious conversation continues, we do have great culinary thinkers on this show, so don't touch your dial. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. you're dedicated to great taste, well, then you're in the right place. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I love this quote from Janae Claiborne's new cookbook, Sweet Potato Soul. It's from culinary historian Bob Jeffries, who once said, and I quote, while all soul food is Southern food, not all Southern food is soul. Well, every week, it's my goal to feed your soul, and Janae Claiborne is keeping soul food alive with her vegan approach to the southern flavors of smoke and sugar and spice. And she is here to dish on her creative and very charming first book release entitled Sweet Potato Soul, and I'm glad to have you. Hi, Janae. Hi. Good to be here. <laughs> glad to have you again. Um, okay. Um Let's talk about your life as a vegan, please. For those that choose the lifestyle, I, I very much respect it. Um, and I think um, you feel probably fabulous all the time, which I love. You share five healthy food rules to live by. So um, school us, please. Well, the number one thing is to avoid all animal products. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a vegan, that's what I do. Now, I'm an ethical vegan, so health is important to me, but the primary reason I became vegan and maintain a vegan diet is for ethics, um, and uh, so that's number one, and I don't look at animal food as food or animal products as food, so that makes it a lot easier. I don't hmm. feel cravings or, you know, feel like, oh, I wish I could eat that if I'm sitting at a table with people who are eating um, animals, so that's the easy one for me. Okay, respect <laughs> and that. Then I love the idea of eating your colors and like eating the rainbow because I know there's so many, so much confusing information about, oh, should I be eating this? Should I be eating that? Oh, I thought broccoli was good for me, but this new report says whatever, which don't, don't go by that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, the best thing is to, of course, eat intuitively, like eat the foods that are obviously healthy, the things that come out of the ground the things that our grandparents and great-grandparents sustain themselves on, um, but also eat your colors. So if you're afraid that you're not getting enough balance, make sure that your plate has a variety of colors on it. That's why I said eat the rainbow. So green from your green vegetables. And, you know, I love sweet potatoes, mm, so I yes. always like to add the brightest sweet potatoes on my plate. And dark beans, red beans, different types of rice. There's black rice and brown rice, obviously, but there's also red rice and there's there's um, a jade rice. So you can have a lot of fun with different colors and different also textures on your plate, too. And that's just a great way to maintain your balance and make sure that you're getting all the right nutrients that you need. And I think that applies to no matter your, I call it a culinary lifestyle, no matter how you choose to eat, 
we can all eat more color. Absolutely. Yes. I totally agree with that. Now, you don't count calories or protein, do you? Correct. No, because I find that if I'm eating a wholesome diet with plenty of balance and I'm eating enough food where I'm feeling full and nourished, because you know when you're full and you know when you're nourished, right? I woke up this morning feeling super hungry because I didn't have a great balanced dinner last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, my body's going to give me those signals. I yes. don't have to count calories to know, oh, did I eat enough food or not? And I just, like I said, with the whole eating of the colors and, <clears throat> excuse me, eating the colors and, and using that as a way to, to guide you to eat more balanced diet, then you don't have to count protein and calories because you're going to be getting plenty. Now, when it comes to protein, we do in America put way too much emphasis on protein. For us, protein is like the end all and the be all, the most important nutrient, right? But really, it isn't the case. It is important, but we don't need as much of it as we think we do. And it's also not as difficult to, to get from our food as we think it is. Even if you're a vegan or vegetarian, Mm -hmm. it's not hard at all to get. It's just that you want to make sure that you eat whole foods. So for me, you know, one of my other food rules is to eat an 80-20 diet. Basically, 80% of the time, very minimally processed, whole, plant-based foods. And then occasionally I'll have, you know, maybe some fried food or... You know, a little bit more oil than usual. You call it I, you call it vegan junk food, and I lo- I love it, and and I believe in everything in moderation. So I'm glad you have the twenty percent because that's what life is about. And it's so important to make that eighty percent taste amazing and make you feel amazing, and for you to really enjoy the eighty because you don't want to be like. 80%, oh boy, I'm just eating like grass. Right. <laughs> and then 20, okay, I get to enjoy my the life. The wheatgrass diet. <laughs> no, and, and, and I appreciate those rules. I think, as I said, they can be applied to lots of different uh, lifestyles and choices. And I share your love of sweet potatoes. I was raised on sweet potatoes. My mother would, as a, a quick fix for a starch, she would... you know, a roast or if short on time, microwave a sweet potato. And I remember this very clearly, Janae, wrapped in a paper towel, right? And then she would cut the middle open and put a little pat of unsalted butter and drizzle it with maple syrup. And it was the most delicious, indulgent sort of sweet tooth craving that I fulfilled on a dinner plate. And I... Where are you from? I'm born and raised in Southern California, if you can imagine. But my mom being a fabulous cook, she was ahead of her time. And I've always had a fondness for sweet potatoes. And so much of what you eat and what you cook and what you've shared in the book is sweet potato based. So talk varieties of sweet potatoes available in the US. Pick a few, if you would, that we might not be most associated with that you love. Yeah. Okay. So... A lot of people are confused, as I'm sure you know, uh, about the difference between yams and sweet potatoes. Yes. The things that are called yams at the grocery store are sweet potatoes. Right. You've, most of us have probably never seen a yam, a true African yam <laughs> or an Asian yam. Um, so the ones with beautiful orange tubers at the grocery store, they are indeed sweet potatoes. And usually, you know, at the grocery store, they have the jewel yams, the garnet, um, and sometimes you'll see the Beauregard, but the... Well, I should be, I'm really talking about my personal grocery store. I go to uh, Sprout. Sure. 
but at Sprouts, they tend to have the Garnet and the Jewel. Um, but my favorite, my, those are my favorites for sure. Those are like the classic ones. However, like different ones, I love the Okinawan sweet potatoes. So those do are the I. Do you? Aren't they amazing? Outrageous. <laughs> I'm outrageous. So they're like bright purple on the inside, yes. almost neon. Yeah, they're fabulous. And then so so unassuming on the outside, right? It's like you wouldn't think that there'd be a whole like neon purple amazing nutritious thing on the inside so. and I will say they're they're they are fun they're available at most Asian markets as you reference in the book and so to really eat those colors sometimes you need to broaden your horizons and look to those ethnic markets to find new varieties um, or to uh, Melissa's produce um, one of my great supporters to find uh, you know those new and enlightened vegetables, as I like to call them. Um, I didn't know about the Korean version. Goguma, is it? Yes, I think that's how you pronounce it. That's how it's spelled, <laughs> at least like phonetically. But yeah, those are really wonderful too. So those have like a yellowish, creamy, you know, inside color. And they've got a brownish, almost like brown, slightly purplish skin on the outside. Those I love the I love them best when they're roasted. You know how our you know like how your mom and and my grandmother used to roast them in the oven whole. Mm, yes. Those and so all the the sugars are caramelizing on the inside and coming out of the skin on the outside. They're super sweet and starchy in the best way. I love those and because they're different. Also, all these even though they're all sweet potatoes, they are all different. They, they are all different. unique. I agree. Um, sweet potato parsnip bisque. You do not need to be a vegan to make this recipe. And I love the combination of sweet potatoes and parsnips because they're two of my favorite things. Oh, me too. Yes. And the, the creaminess of a parsnip and the sweetness of a parsnip compounded with the sweetness of a sweet potato. And you add cannellini beans for texture and viscosity. Yes. And it looks luscious, this recipe. Certainly is. That, that's been a really popular one since the book came out. Hmm. I, you know, people tag me on their Instagram posts and also on Facebook. So I get to see when people are making these recipes. Love and that. that one is a big time, like, fan favorite. Okay. So it, we'll hope that you'll share it of from, outside from, of the book. Uh, we are dishing with Janae Claiborne, her book, Sweet Potato Soul. Her background, a vegan chef and a cre uh, the creator, rather, of Sweet Potato Soul, the blog and YouTube channel that everyone loves, um, studied at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and sharing her insight into Southern flavors of smoke, sugar, spice, and of course, soul. So stay tuned because there's more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Delicious and divine, it's food and wine. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Janae Claiborne is here with the release of her first cookbook, Sweet Potato Soul. We are talking 
easy vegan recipes with sweet potatoes as the theme. Okay, Janae, let's cook. But first, let's talk about your Southern roots because I would like to keep a a homemade version of Creole seasoning in my cabinet to use at all times. And you were, of course, the inspiration for that. I love that you share the sort of famous family recipe, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's just so easy to make. So why not keep it in your house at all times? Exactly. Do you use it for everything? Give us some uh, inspiration. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what? One of my favorite ways to use it is the simplest way, just to put it on popcorn. Yes. Popcorn with, you know, olive oil or coconut oil. Mm, Um, Yummy. But I do, like when I'm cooking Creole dishes, like the etouffee or gumbo or jambalaya, that's something that I always whip out. I I have to admit, I ran out last week and oh. I haven't made any yet. <laughs> oh, you're I'm, slacking, girlfriend. No, no, don't <laughs> tell anyone. I won't tell anyone. Don't worry. But I do love you make an oyster mushroom etouffee. Oh yeah. And I trained in New Orleans, so I know I did. I know an etouffee and a gumbo, and I know how long it takes to make a truly deserving roux. Um, but an oyster mushroom etouffee totally appeals to me. Oh, good. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. I absolutely can't wait. And so you can keep that Creole seasoning made, you know, a double or triple recipe of such in the cabinet and use it to sprinkle on everything. Absolutely. Whenever you need a, like a little, little kick, kick of something. Yes. Yeah. Cause it's spicy too. Yeah. So good. Could we, could we make the fluffy sweet potato biscuits that you make savory and sweet by adding some of that Creole seasoning or topping them? I like the way you think. Absolutely. Cinnamon, honey butter, little Creole seasoning. Mm -hmm. Talk biscuits, if you would. I think that would make your Nana proud, right? Oh, I know. I know. Yeah, we love biscuits in our home. Yes. Uh, We'd have them on Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings. So it's so funny. My family is a little different. We always, they always play gospel music. They're going to kill me for saying this, but we didn't go to church very often. (laughs) so we kind of made church in the house so I would wake up in the morning just the smell of biscuits or maybe she's making pancakes always also home fries too Mm. so my favorite and so of course you know I had to do my little take on the biscuit so I ended up putting the sweet potato biscuit recipe in the book now that recipe is one that I had shared on my blog previously and over and I, I think I shared it like in 2015 or 2014 a while ago so I have years and years and years of people telling me, oh, my God, this is such a great recipe. Uh, so it's tried and true. Yes, for sure. all over. <laughs> Leave us with sweet potato tahini cookies. I think tahini is having its day. I know. Now, yes. of course, tahini is not a Southern American or soul food. No, no it isn't. <laughs> not at all. But I didn't hear about tahini until, I don't know, when I was in college, probably. Definitely didn't grow up with that. But that is one of my favorite recipes, and it is so luscious and, like, decadent, rich, but literally, or straight up, it's healthy. Like, tahini is a whole food. It's simply blended sesame seeds. There's no added oil. They are sweetened with maple syrup and, of course, the sweet potato. And the sweet potato is shredded, so you have the texture, sort of a chewy, sweet texture in there as well. Mm. I just had to include that. And even though it's not a soul food, you know, traditional soul food or Southern thing, to me, those cookies are definitely 
Yeah, they're my definition of soul food. But we love that you included it because, as you know, and we respect one another's culinary lifestyle. I am far from a vegan, but I cannot wait to make those cookies. I love tahini. I love the texture and the flavor, and I've not baked with it enough. And so. Um, I too will post and let you know how my cookies, my Janae Claiborne cookies turn out. Um, The book is so inspired and I really appreciate that you are sharing your passion for what you believe in and for how you cook and eat so well. So congratulations to you. I know this was a labor of love and I'm thrilled to be able to support it. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. If you crave Southern flavors and soul food classics and you want to eat lean and clean, Janae Claiborne's plant-based soul food will satisfy. Check out her first cookbook release entitled Sweet Potato Soul. It's on Amazon and everywhere, and you can follow her at Sweet Potato Soul. Janae, come back again when you have more uh, recipe inspiration, please. I'd love to. Thank you. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of Great Taste. You do have great taste to have tuned in, and I'm grateful. Don't worry, if you happen to have missed a show or you'd like to find my podcasts, search Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen on iTunes, and you can take me with you wherever you go. You'll always find me serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com with thousands of recipes, videos, and more to make every day delicious. And I hope you'll follow and become a friend and a fan on social at Chef Jamie Gwen, where you will find this recipe, my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. Just the name alone makes you want to eat them. Sticky chicken wings. Oh, yes. They're sticky balsamic chicken wings, in fact, and I make them on top of the stove with just five ingredients. And it's twice as fast as baking. And the glaze is like lip-smackingly good. And I will say it's a short list of ingredients, but don't let it fool you because the wings actually braise in the liquid, which then uh, simmers away and reduces down to a glaze. And it is so sticky and so yummy and so wonderful. You'll start with chicken wings, a cup of water, half a cup of balsamic, a third of a cup of soy sauce, some brown sugar, garlic, ginger, and red pepper flakes. And I will post the method because you'll cook them in a pan, a big, large, wide skillet, in fact, uncovered for about 20 minutes. And then you will move the the chicken wings to one side and the sauce will simmer and thicken on the other takes about five or so. And you get this really decadently delicious, sticky balsamic chicken wing that you just can't get enough of. I garnish with some green onions and open a good IPA and dinner's ready. I'll once again post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend for more scintillating and scrumptious conversation in your radio. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.